that's good. Follow along. If you don't, it should be on the screen. And <clears throat> there should be an outline in your bulletin. And there are printed messages at both exits. And you can um, get those or online as well. Those are on the church website and the audio will be up there shortly. Moses writes, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a, excuse me, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you don't forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He's commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in 
to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all his, this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. I'm dating myself, but uh, many, many decades ago, Marla and I used to enjoy the uh, TV show Little House on the Prairie. Some of you uh, may be old enough to remember that, but... Um, one of my favorite episodes was when Charles and Carolyn, who were the mother and father in the show, uh, left their little farmland and house there on the prairie, and they went over to the big city of Milwaukee to attend a 25th um, high school reunion. They discovered there that most of their friends had become wealthy and sophisticated, and the simple farm people from the prairie, Charles and Carolyn, just didn't quite fit in with the social crowd that was, was there, being more well-to-do, high society and all. But as the show unfolded, you saw that while their friends were financially well-off and seemingly on the surface successful, they were not happy. Their marriages were not good. They were dallying around with one another and that sort of thing. And uh, it, it was just a contrast between the two. Well, at the end of the show, Charles and Carolyn returned to their little farm, and they're walking up toward their house, and their children all come bounding out of the house to greet them warmly with hugs and kisses and welcome home and all. And uh, Charles turns to Carolyn and he says, Now, if that's not success... I don't know what is. And I just watched that show and said, Amen. Because in our culture, it seems like success is defined by money <clears throat> or fame or career success. But God views success in terms of godly, loving relationships in our, in our families. And our text tells us not only you notice how to raise up godly children, but also in verse 2 it mentions your grandson. So it's talking about multiple generations that would be raised up. And that should be our goal and our prayer as we have families that not only our children, but our grandchildren and even great-grandchildren for many generations would Grow up to love and follow and serve the Lord. It's the principle of 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul says to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there are four generations there, you notice. There's Paul. And there's Timothy and the other witnesses that are with him. And then there are the faithful men. And then those faithful men are to teach others also. So there's to be this multi-generation discipleship process going on. And I believe that that's what God wants us to see in our homes as we uh, follow his direction on rearing our families. And so... 
want to focus this morning on this. It's a sermon, really, that Moses preached to Israel. God had told him he was not going across the Jordan into the promised land. And so he's kind of handing off this baton to them and telling them you're going to face a lot of temptations in the land. You're going to be surrounded by pagans. But his point is to raise up godly generations Three things. Love God fervently. Teach your children diligently. And live in the world carefully. And then he says in verse 3, then it will be well with you under God's blessing. So the first thing is to raise up godly generations. Love God fervently. Verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And the most important ingredient in raising up godly generations is to walk in reality with the living God, with God on the heart level. Because you cannot pass on to your children what you yourself do not possess. And so if you want your kids to love the Lord your God, guess what? I have to love the Lord my God, and you do if you have children. And that requires two things. First of all, to love God fervently, you have to know Him through His Word. Verse 4 in Jewish circles is called the Shema. And that comes from the first word in Hebrew, here, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. And it is a central tenet of Judaism. It is cited even to this day by um, uh, faithful Jewish people every day. And uh, the call to hear is a call that says this is important and this must be obeyed. And so it can be translated in two different ways. As our text says, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, is our God. Yahweh is one. But also it can be translated, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. And it's pointing to probably, it's not dealing with the internal uh, matter of the Trinity, although I'll come on that in a second. But it's probably rather saying there is only one true and living God and it is Him alone exclusively that you must worship. Uh, as the Lord says in Isaiah 45.5, He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Now, our God is one God who exists eternally in three uh, co-equal, co-eternal persons. And that is revealed um, implicitly in the Old Testament and then made explicit in the New. Uh, For example, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16. This is Messiah speaking, who other scriptures show is God. And Messiah says, And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. So you see, there are three divine persons in that one verse. There is 
the Lord God. There is Messiah who is speaking and there is His Spirit. I think also the Trinity is um, implied in Genesis chapter 1 where uh, God uses plural pronouns about Himself. Genesis 1.26 Let us make God in our image. And I know that Jewish scholars scramble to explain that differently, but it seems to me it opens the door for the doctrine of the Trinity. And when we get to the New Testament, it's very clear that Jesus is God and that Jesus, who is God, was actively involved in the creation of all things along with the Father and the Spirit. But um, in Revelation chapter 1-8, The Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So that's the Lord God speaking. You get to the end of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13, and Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, That's either blasphemy because he's claiming to be what the Lord God is, or it is a legitimate claim to deity, which I believe is true, that Jesus is the Lord God. Now, the only way that anyone can know this eternal triune God is by his revelation to us in his word. Uh, He he is unchangeable in his attributes. He is perfect in all his ways. But the point is, you can't learn about God through sitting down and speculating with philosophy. Well, I think God may be like this. Well, no, I think he's like that. That won't lead us to know God. You can't know the living and true God by mystical experiences or by uh, subjective feelings. The only way we can know God is by his written word. And you'll notice how often Moses here emphasizes the written word. There's, in verse 1, the word commandment and statutes and judgments. And in verse 6, these words I'm commanding you today. And then all throughout the chapter, he mentions commandments as well. So we are to know this God personally. But beyond that, Moses says we are to love him. We are to love Him. And as Jesus in the New Testament said, loving God is the first, the great and foremost commandment uh, in all of Scripture. So it's not enough just to know about God, although we must do that because you can't love a God you don't know. But beyond that, we must know Him personally in a personal love relationship with God that involves our total being. And that means that Christianity is not primarily a matter of going through rituals or going to church or whatever. It is primarily knowing God personally by entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in His death on the cross for your sins. That's the beginning of the Christian life. But like any relationship, it has to be maintained and deepened over the years. Uh, 
43 plus years ago, I married my wife. But if I'd said, hey, that's great, now we're married, bye, uh, we wouldn't have a very good relationship. We have to work on that constantly and develop that relationship. And it's the same with the Lord. And so that means spending time alone with the Lord consistently every day, reading His Word and praying and growing in the things of God. And as you read the Word, your prayer should be, Lord, I want to know you better. And read a portion of Scripture and ask yourself the question, what does this Scripture teach me about God? How can I know Him and love Him better through what He reveals of Himself here in this portion of His Word? And uh, so that's the number one priority because you cannot rear your children in the Lord if you don't have that personal love relationship with the Lord that's vital and real and growing and, and constant. And then secondly, to love the love God fervently, you have to walk with Him in reality on the heart level. And it's emphasized in this chapter, the heart. Notice in verses 5 and 6, Moses says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he repeats it by saying, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And I don't believe that verse, heart, soul, mind, Jesus adds, um, or heart, soul, might, Jesus adds mind, is, is a technical breakdown of the human psyche as much as it's saying your total person, every aspect of your being should be uh, loving the Lord your God. And uh, that should be the great quest of our lives. So as I said, that requires a personal relationship with God. And if you recall in the New Testament, the Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament Scripture. And outwardly, they obeyed the Old Testament Scripture meticulously, tithing even their table spices. But their hearts were far from God. And Jesus condemns them in Mark 7 for that and says, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful, it's easy just to fall into the outward motions of being Christians and not dealing with God on the heart level. Uh, Loving God, then, is not just a matter of warm feelings about God, although I argue you should have feelings about God, feeling love for Him. But Loving God becomes a matter, again, of heart obedience to His Word. In John chapter 14, in verse 21, Jesus makes a startling statement. You know, if you ever pray, Lord, I would like you to show me yourself, disclose yourself to me. Here's how to do it. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and, notice, will disclose myself to him. It's an amazing statement. So genuine Christianity, then, is a matter of coming to know God better through his word, and the way you know you're doing that is you're obeying him more and more 
and more on the heart or the thought level uh, motivated by his great love for us as, as seen at the cross. One time in my ministry in California, a man accused me of being legalistic and I said to him, well, what, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that to me? And he said, well, you preach obedience. And I said, well, yeah, it seems to me Jesus then must have been a legalist because he's got a lot to say about obedience. And the Apostle Paul, in fact, all of the Bible says a lot of, about obedience. Obeying God is not legalism. Now, it can become that if you're just doing it outwardly to make a good show to other Christians, but you're not seeking to have your conscience right with God, your heart right with him. Um, verses 8 and 9, for example, some of the Jews, even to this day, Orthodox Jews, take that literally. They, they bind the commandments in the little leather box on their hand and on their forehead, and they put it out on, on the door of their house. Uh, that's not what the Lord was getting at there. What he's getting at is that the Word of God should permeate every area of life. And when you begin to obey God outwardly, but not on the heart level, the results can be absolutely disastrous because it was the Pharisees who prided themselves in their obedience to God's law who crucified their Messiah. And so we have to make sure that it goes down to the heart level. And if we say, well, I love God, but you know you're not obeying him, you're not judging your sin uh, on the thought level, that kind of thing, then 1 John says we're either deceived or we're lying. And uh, so here's how this applies to raising our kids. Religiosity just won't cut it. It won't do. You've got to be walking with God with reality on the heart level because kids can smell hypocrisy a mile away. And the fact is, if you're angry with your kids at home, yelling at them all week long, oops, it's church time. Put on your Christian face. Go to church. Yeah, we're a wonderful, loving Christian family. Da, da, da. And you go home, scream at them, yell at them, abuse them. They get the message. Christianity is a bunch of malarkey. It's just phony. And that comes through to your kids. And they, they will turn away from it. Or again, your relationship with your wife. If your kids see you and your wife angrily yelling at each other and calling each other names and you're not dealing with conflict in a godly way, as I explained several weeks ago, and then again, you put on your Christian face and you all go to church and you're a big, happy Christian family. Kids put that together real quick and say, there's a dissonance here. There's something wrong. And they'll miss the reality of a walk with Christ and think, well, Christianity is just a, a religious game. Doesn't mean anything. Or again, many Christian families, they don't show the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that doesn't come through during the week, but the rules do. You know, we're a Christian family, and here's our rules, because we want to look good to the world, especially the Christian world, 
And so you lay all these rules on your kids, but they don't see the fruit of the Spirit coming forth in your, in your life and dealing with them and with your mate. Uh, they're going to reject the faith. Now, you say, wow, you're talking about perfection? No, not for a minute. I yelled at my kids. I failed in that way, sinned in that way. Here's what you do. You go to them sincerely and you say, I am so sorry. I, I yelled at you. I was wrong. I sinned and I've asked God to forgive me. And I've come to ask, will you forgive me? And you deal with your sin and your relationships that way. Or if you and your wife have had a spat in front of the kids, don't just make up in private. Call the family together and say, hey kids, we, we blew it. You know, we really were wrong. And that's not the way God wants us to solve our problems. And so we're, we've asked God to forgive us. And we ask you to forgive us. And your kids will realize at that point, dad isn't perfect, but he is walking with God. And that's what a walk with God means, that we confess our sins and seek forgiveness and that sort of thing. And so foundational, foundational to rearing godly generations is that you love God fervently from the heart and fight lukewarmness like the plague. You know, just pray that you will not lose your first love for Jesus as he rebukes the church in Ephesus there in Ephesians 2. But that that love for God will come through in your daily walk to your kids. And that is the foundation for raising godly generations. A second uh, theme in this chapter then is to raise up godly generations. Love God fervently and then teach your children diligently. Verse 7 you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And that word teach diligently in Hebrew has the idea of sharpening or wetting and the NIV translates it, impress these things on your, on your kids. In other words, make an impact on them that your teaching should penetrate them deeply and you come at it from every angle is the idea of verse 7. As I said, some of the Hebrews took verses 8 and 9 literally. But the idea is God's commandments should be so central in your life that um, you're just thinking about them all of the time and that it's going to come through to your kids that God's word is central. That's where we, uh, what we follow, that's what we obey. Now verse 7 implies something, and that is that you do actually take the time to sit in your house long enough to talk to your family. And I'm afraid that that's often not the case with our modern uh, busy lifestyle. And by the way, talk with them with the TV off. But if you're so busy as a family that your norm is not to sit down once a day at a meal, dinner probably, and just be able to talk about the events of the day, you need to change your schedule. Because that's essential, to just talk uh, of them when you sit in your house. And um, we found when we were raising kids, dinner was a good time. Just read a, a portion of the Bible. Uh, when the kids were young, it was always the story portions, the narratives. 
as they grew a little older, we tackled books like Romans and, you know, those kind of more doctrinal books. But when they were young, just the Bible stories using a children's version and then just a few minutes in prayer. It didn't have to take 10 minutes. But I will say this, even though we did this the whole time our kids were growing up, it took diligence because invariably, Dad, I got homework. Come back. Your homework will wait. You know, or the phone rang invariably while we're reading the Bible. Let the uh, voicemail get it or the answer machine. You don't have to respond. But you have to be diligent to teach your kids. And I believe, men, that this is our responsibility as the head spiritually of our home. And I think that there are a lot of Christian fathers who defer to their wives on this. And you need to make sure it happens and take the initiative to do it. And almost all the biblical commands to rearing children are given to men, fathers. And um, don't count on Sunday school either. I love the fact that our faithful Sunday school teachers teach our children, but that should be supplemental to the core because they only get them for an hour a week. You get them all week long. And so that should be your job. Just, again, simple God's Word, prayer. Um, We used to pray for missions too and missionaries. I wish I had done this and I didn't, but you can do it. And that is use a catechism. Uh, John Piper has a very helpful catechism on his website. And you can go on there and it's just a question and answer format with kids. And it'll teach you too um, as you try to train your children. So when you sit in your house and then when you walk by the way, and that means going places together, maybe it's as simple as taking a child to the store with you and you see some guy in line frustrated with the long line and teaching opportunity later to tell your, talk to your kids, you know, how, how should a Christian respond when we get in frustrating situations? Um, maybe a family outing, going on hikes together. And we had some wonderful discussions as we would hike. And I remember one time when uh, an unbelieving man joined us on the hike. I mean, he, he was just hiking and we happened to cross paths. And eventually I began to share the Lord with him. And my son was about nine at the time. And he was listening to the whole thing. And after the man left us, he said, Dad, he was illogical. And I said, well, how was that? And he pointed out the guy's fallacies and reasoning. And I thought, hey, you know, he was tracking with this whole situation. So family outings. And then, uh, and you can talk to them too about the beauty of creation. It is simply impossible that this complex creation is an accident. God created the heavens and the earth and we should worship him as we enjoy the beauty of creation. When you lie down, of course, bedtime. And if you can, be there, tuck your kids in bed, listen to their concerns, pray with them. Um, It should be a special time. And then when you rise up, another opportunity. You know, do you have a bear in your family that mornings are kind of difficult for? Well, by your example and your teaching, you should show them You know, we can start the day off cheerful in the Lord. You know, we can look to the Lord and we can uh, 
thank the Lord. Here's a good verse, you know. Start out with a verse. Oh, give thanks to the Lord or whatever it may be. And bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. And so teach your kids when you rise up. And then binding them on your hand in verse 8, I think, means your actions should, again, reflect God's ways and His commands. Putting them on your forehead, of course, implies your thoughts, your attitudes should communicate God's truth. The doorposts point to the home as the focal point, the center of teaching God's truth. And then the gate would have in that day referred to the civic life because it was at the city gate that they conducted business. And so, again, you can discuss national and uh, world events with your children Talk to them about how, how we think as Christians about the current uh, scandals going on and all of those kinds of things. But Moses' point is everything you think and do from home to the business world to the uh, political world should be permeated with the Word of God and a Christian worldview. And then also... Verses 20 and following, Moses mentions, when your son asks you in time to come, what do these things mean? You answer his questions. Uh, so many guys would say, go ask your mother. You know, I don't know. Uh, no, you're on. And uh, Moses talks there about the Exodus. And the Exodus in the Old Testament is the great type or picture of our salvation. And so when your kids ask you questions, try and direct it back to the gospel. We all need a Savior. We're all lost. We're all sinners. And the good news is God provided redemption in Christ through His blood. And we can trust Him. And so relating things back. And uh, don't respond to your kids' questions by just, well, that's just what we believe. Or, you know, because I said so. If Give them, they want to know why and explain the whys to them. Or if it's a question, you say, I honestly don't know. Don't be ashamed to admit that, but then do some research and come back and tell them, here's what I understand. One other thought, verse 24, Moses says that God's commands are for our good. And that is so important. You know, there are a lot of negative commands in the Bible, but you don't want your kids to grow up thinking, as Christians, we can't do anything that's fun, and we have to do all this stuff that's not fun. Uh, that's not the vision of the Bible. God gives His commandments for our good and our blessing. And when we obey them, we are blessed. It, I compare them to the rules of the road. You can run red lights and drive on the left side of the road for a while. And then it's going to be disaster. You'll go through a red light and some guy's going to T-bone you and it's all over. And it's the same with God's commands. You can get away with breaking them for a while. And it seems like life is good. You get there faster. You know, things go well. Stupid red light. And then God always brings consequences. You reap what you've sown. So explain that to your kids in a wholesome and helpful way that God's commands are for our good and we want to obey them for that. So the idea is both from your life, you love God with all your heart and 
your teaching, uh, that they see that the Bible applies to all of life. And from everything to how we think, to uh, how we relate to one another, to how we think about the world, the Bible has the answers to that. And so teach your kids diligently. Always be open to their questions. So love God fervently. Teach your kids diligently. And then finally, to raise up godly generations, live in the world carefully. And that's in primarily verses 10 through 19. Moses warns them, you're going into a pagan world. The Canaanites live there. And it's easy to drift into the ways of the world. And so there are two safeguards he reveals here. First of all, he says, continually watch yourself. Verse 12, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord. And when times are good, there's a progression that sets in. You notice in verse 11, you get satisfied with your comfy lifestyle. Hey, things are good. And then in verse 12, you forget the Lord. And finally, in verse 14, you begin following the gods of the people who surround you. And you know, it's often easier to trust the Lord when times are hard not when times are good. Let's face it, many of us today probably came to church without a thought. Didn't have to trust God for that. It's just what we do on Sunday. Now, what if the government threatened, if you guys meet on Sunday, we're going to round you up and put you in prison. And that's the truth with many of our brothers and sisters around the world. If you were here today, you would be actively trusting in God. Saying, wow, do I want to do this? Okay, God, I'll trust you. Here we go. Or another example, when you've got plenty, it's easy just to cruise. But when you don't know for sure how you're going to pay the next bill, boy, you're on your knees saying, God, help. I need your, your strength and I need your provision. And so Moses' point is here, be careful when things are good that you don't drift into not trusting in God. And pretty soon you start, as Moses says, worshiping other gods. Now maybe you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're Christians, we don't worship idols, we don't have any idols set up at home on, on the mantle. Well, Bo gave me a coffee cup, from, it's got a quote from John Calvin. And Calvin said this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And that ties in with 1 John at the very end of that short letter. 1 John 5.21 gives you a very terse warning. It says, little children, keep yourself from idols. John wouldn't say that if it weren't a danger. And so we need to do that. You say, well, what are some of the idols of the people who surround us? Well, I've already mentioned one, affluence. We just got through uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday where all of the merchants are trying to tell us, rack up your credit card bill because you need what we have to offer to make you happy. And, you know, it's easy to buy into that mindset. It bombards us daily. You need this to be happy. And pretty soon you're collecting all the stuff of the world rather than saying, wait a minute, I am a steward of what God has given me and I'm going to give an account. How should I invest what he's given me in light of his kingdom purpose? 
Another god, another idol is self. And you follow that idol when you use God for the benefits that He can provide. In other words, well, I'll follow the Lord if He'll give me this and if He'll give me that. But then when you get into trials, that's another story. And that's what Moses is referring to in verse 16 when he talks about Massa. What happened at Massa was Israel, God had delivered them through the ten plagues and drowning Pharaoh's army in the sea. And they get out into the wilderness and they find no water. And what do they do? They start grumbling and saying, hey, we had it better back in Egypt. Let's go back there. And they just totally didn't trust God when the trials hit because they wanted a God who you pull the lever and all the goodies come. And uh, there are a lot of people in that mindset today. And the point is, again, how you handle trials teaches your kids a lot. You know, when, when the Lord takes away, do you teach your kids, we trust the Lord now too. Because he is good even when uh, he takes away what we thought we needed. I'm going to step on toes here, but I'm going to mention a third idol. Sports. I think sports becomes an idol in America. Uh, I, have a, I put an article up on my bulletin board by a pastor named Jim Eliff. And the title of the article is, When Ball Becomes Bail. And he makes the point that many Christian families have made sports the household God. Uh, they order their schedules around it. Their kids are on more teams than they need to be. And if the team is playing on Sunday, guess what gets first priority? Well, I mean, the team needs all the players and our kids on the team. So by church, and I, it concerns me. What are you teaching your kids about priorities? Sports is more important than church. Church is always there as a nice thing when we need it. But, you know, sports, that's central. We got to worship at that altar. And a lot of guys, they spend hours and hours every week watching games on TV. And very little time reading their Bible and praying and teaching their children the ways of God and serving the Lord. Just don't have time. Well, what are you doing with your time? Well, there was this game on Monday and this one on Thursday and this one on Sunday. And, you know, pretty soon sports consumes our, our lives. Now, there's nothing wrong with watching a good game. I enjoy that once in a while. But uh, it's a matter of how much, you know. And when it begins to control everything, then it seems to me uh, we're teaching our kids something wrong, that sports is central God takes back seat. So watch yourself. It's easy to go into the land, and we live in a pagan land, and forget the Lord and the great salvation that he provided. A second way that we um, live in the world carefully is to constantly focus on pleasing God. Verse 18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. And again, that last phrase, in the sight of the Lord. The Lord knows all our thoughts. He knows all our words, all our deeds, our action, our schedules, our possessions, everything. So everything has to have this Godward focus. 
in the sight of the Lord. And that's the goal you want with your kids because you're only going to be over them for maybe 18 years. And by the time they get up to their teen years, you want them increasingly being accountable to God so that when they finally leave the nest, they're living their life Godward. And uh, if you only teach them to obey you, well, what happens when you're not around? <laughs> and God is always around. And so the focus again is please the Lord. Do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And uh, when you do that, and your kids then eventually do that, they will have reality with God, living all of life in his presence. <clears throat> There's a man named Bill Glass who was an evangelist, and he faithfully counseled with prisoners uh, every weekend for over 25 years. And he made the comment that among the thousands of prisoners that he had met, not one of them genuinely loved his dad. And he said that 95% of those men on death row hated their fathers. There was a failure on the home that led to criminal behavior. Do solid Christian homes make a difference? Well, back in 1900, a man studied the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Jonathan was the New England revival preacher. He was a well-known theologian. He became the president of Princeton University shortly before he died of a smallpox inoculation. But in studying those homes, and the statistics vary some, but these are generally valid, over 100 of Edward's descendants became ministers, missionaries, and theological professors. Thirteen became university presidents. At least 65 were college professors. More than 100 were lawyers and judges. Uh, more than 60 were physicians. 86 became state senators. Three were state governors. Three were U.S. congressmen. One became the comptroller of the United States Treasury and one, although ironically he was kind of the black sheep of the family in terms of not being saved, but he became the vice president of the United States. That was Aaron Burr Jr. Well, we aren't guaranteed of leaving that kind of an impressive legacy on history, but I do believe the best way we can make an impact for Christ is if we raise up godly generations through our homes. And the way we raise up godly generations through our homes is that we love God fervently, we teach our children diligently, and we live in the world carefully. Uh, if this message maybe is making you feel super guilty and you're going, wow, I've really blown it, the good news of the Bible from cover to cover is this. God allows U-turns. It's called repentance. And when we turn around, God pours out undeserved mercy and grace. And that's the message of the cross. That though we were guilty before God, we deserved his judgment. Christ came and died in the place of sinners. 
And now God offers a full pardon, not earned, not deserved, but granted freely to all who come. Romans chapter 10 and verse 12 says that the Lord is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. What a great promise. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've never entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that is our main desire and prayer for you. And no matter how badly you may have sinned and blown it, no matter how long you've done that, if you'll return to the Lord and call upon Him, He is rich in mercy. Dear Father, our homes need Your grace. We're all painfully aware of our shortcomings and thank You that You're a gracious and forgiving God. And I pray, Lord, that your hand of blessing would be on every Christian home represented here. That they would be training ground for godly children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren should you tarry. And Lord, have your protective hand around our children. We are imperfect parents. We sin a lot and we need grace a lot. And thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we might be rich through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.